And before we jump in, it just seems appropriate. The Lord has been doing much good in our church over the past year, but I think it's important for us to make sure we understand that the Lord is not doing something in our church because we are special. He's not doing something unique in our church. This is what God does. This is what we would just say is normative. We see this normally happening. Not that it's not spectacular and miraculous, but this is just what God does. And I, I think I have been convicted recently because I think this is somehow completely different than what God has been doing for 2,000 years in his church, bringing people to repentance, bringing people to confession, restoring marriages, bringing healing, bringing joy. This is what God does. I think it is us who have been confused that what he often does is just say, do your job, show up to church, check the box, do your thing, act like you got it together, and then you'll get into heaven when you die. Like, that's just not what he does. And so I have to confess to you, over the past year, my own story of addiction to pornography, the Lord has brought back to the surface, is something that I, I didn't want to talk about. Though by God's grace, he has kept me from that addiction for about 10 or 15 years, I didn't want to tell people about it because what the Lord has revealed for me is I still have an incredible lust for fame and a lust for people to believe that I've got it together. And so I've even withheld from my group and not shared more wholly with them. I get uncomfortable around my wife when she asks if temptation has happened for me in a particular week. And so though that the sin of pornography may be in the rearview mirror for me by God's grace, what is in the foreground for me is still my idols of power, my idols of control, my idols of believing that the church is somehow a platform for my own notoriety. These are things that I was just going to be cool with never telling anybody. And yet, what the Lord has done in this season is just go, if, if, if you are truly going to be a part of this church, not lead this with the elders, but be a part of this church, this is what I'm doing. And so, none of us has been immune to the work of God's grace in bringing reconciliation through confession and repentance. And so, I would just like to suggest to you, the second year, buckle up, because the Lord does not produce holiness just because. The Lord doesn't call us to repentance just because he thinks that that's really interesting. He does it because he desires to use us. He purifies his bride that he might use his church, his people, for his goodness, for his pleasure, for his purposes. And so as he's been faithful through Acts, though I'm lamenting, we only have about four weeks left in Acts. Um, I don't know, what, what are we going to even talk about? I don't, I don't even know. Let's just go back to the first chapter. Um, I have forgotten how to speak from the rest of the scriptures. Uh, help me, Lord. Um, but he, he is doing this work of confession, and the Lord brings about confession. He brings about repentance because he desires to make his church holy, because a holy church is a useful church in the kingdom of God. And so we trust that it will not be talent that tells us what our responsibility and purpose is, but the holiness of God's Spirit producing these things in his church. So thank you to those men and women who have shared, and as God continues to encourage you to walk in the light as he is in the light, let's do this together. Because all of a sudden what begins to happen is that not the confession is what stands out, but withholding from our brothers and sisters because what God is doing uh, is to lead us into that kind of confession. Uh, I want to talk about judgment today because that's where the text takes us. Uh, judgment is one of these things, and particularly being judgmental, is what we believe is actually a deterrent to relationship. We believe that if people are judgmental, that that will harm our 
relationships. And so, I mean, think about it sort of practically. Anyone who you have or you're close with, if they are judgmental, you're not close to them for very long. If they find that different things about your character, flaws within your particular life that they think are wrong and they keep telling you, you are likely going to move apart. In fact, this is one of the top three reasons why people do not like the church. They believe that the church is incredibly judgmental, that this is a kind of innate quality that we have as a people. Uh, the, the other two being that we are hypocritical and believe that we are an anti-LGBTQI community. These are the top three things that people believe about you, whether or not you believe that they are true or not. This is what those outside of our church family believe. Researcher and author David Kinneman in his book, Unchristian, a project which reviewed types of perspectives like this, but also brought gospel correction. He, he writes this, to be judgmental is to point out something that is wrong in someone else's life, making, them, making that person feel put down, excluded, and marginalized. In other words, to sit in a seat of judgmentalism is to sit in a position of all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God, and to suppose other people to fall short of your own glory. That's what it means to be judgmental. Now, whether or not you and I would go, yeah, that's who we are as a church, or no, that's absolutely who we're not, this is the PR that we have. This is what people believe when they think about the church. One of the sort of anecdotal ways that we realize this is that previous generations, the more, most oft-quoted verse in all of the scriptures, can you guess it? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This generation, the most often quoted verse is Matthew 7.1, judge not that you be not judged. We used to have this sort of iteration of Christian memorization, if you will, of the love of God and the crucifixion of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, and now it's don't judge me, who are you? Paul is being judged. This is where we find ourselves in the story of Acts. The weight of the Roman Empire, the weight of the Jewish authorities are all upon Paul. They are all judging him. Jerusalem their strength lay in this history and tradition, and Rome's strength laid in conquest and organization, says John Stott. And both of these are ammunitions aimed against the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine? No one in your religious community, your ethnic community, your cultural community thinks you're doing well. Not only that, but your government and the political systems around you are all looking at you, scrutinizing your every move. Now, we might think, Paul is able to endure this because he's a superhero Christian, right? There's like 12 of them, aren't there? 12 of them. One was an imposter, Judas. He wasn't really super. We found out he's kryptonite. He, ha he has a, a weakness, and therefore he's not really one. And Matthias added later, now they have 12, right? That these are sort of super Christians. Or perhaps, what if Paul is not a super Christian? What if perhaps Paul had an understanding and a disposition based on the work and the power of Jesus Christ that he was able to withstand the judgment of everyone around him because he knew who the true judge was? What if Paul's solidarity, his peace, was not because those words didn't affect him or hurt him, but they didn't define him? That he understood that there's only one judge. There's only one judge of the living and the dead, and that is Jesus Christ. This is what Acts chapter 24 will help us with today. So let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's help in this. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you'd open our eyes, open our ears, Help our hearts to be found glad in your word today. 
And as words of confession still echo in our hearts and minds how we are a people yet undone and yet completely hopeful because you are a God who does not just begin works, you complete them. We thank you that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord. What a good God you are. And we thank you that the work of your enduring grace and transformation doesn't just happen through chance. It happens through your word. And so, Father, would you draw us close to your word? Would you make us submissive to your word? Would you make us, Father, would you, would you transform us by the renewing of our minds in these next few moments even, God, that we wouldn't take really good notes that we would try to figure out how to apply this week, but that by your Spirit, our hearts would be transformed right now. That God, the grip that pride and lust and arrogance and self-sufficiency has on my heart, Father, would you loosen that grip as your word is preached? I pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers, that whatever lust and pride of the flesh has hold of them, would you by your spirit break those bonds today that we might be more submissive to your spirit, more joyful in your word. We love that you do that. You don't do that if we pray the right prayer. You do that because you're God and you do all things well. So we're submissive to your work. We're submissive to your leading. Do all of that and more we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So Paul, He's being transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea. If you remember, this is a very long legal and religious battle that Paul is in the middle of. There are both these powers, the Roman oppressors, sort of the governing authorities of the day, holding him in jail, and the Jewish authorities wanting to condemn him from some religious purposes. And none of their accusations are true. None are holding weight. And it's in this spirit that the local authorities, local authority rather, Claudius Lysias, decides that he's going to send Paul away to Caesarea to the governor, a man named Felix. He's going to send him to put him on trial there. And so, if you remember, he puts all of these soldiers together, puts Paul on horseback, sends him down to Caesarea, and we pick up the story in Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Here's how it reads through verse 4. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him, saying this, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. The Jews essentially hire a prosecutor, a man named Tertullus, and we don't know if he's Jewish or if he is a Gentile, but he does use this collective language. Notice first-person plural English teachers, we. He's using this we language in order to identify with the plight of the Jews and bring offense, not just from someone, but even from himself, to this particular judge, to this particular authority, Felix. And he follows this sort of proceeding. Notice the grandstanding that is taken. This is typical in first century sort of parlance, if you will, in the court. Not, not unsimilar, not dissimilar to what we experience today in court when we describe the judge as your honor or the court in the sort of these very powerful euphemistic sort of terms giving honor to the authority and power that a judge has. And both Tertullus and Paul in just a minute will follow suit with this kind of first century habit. Now, now notice Tertullus' language is way extreme, right? 
Like, you're incredible, Felix. We all worship the ground you walk on. Here are some tulips we're throwing in the air, and they're all descending. How beautiful this is, right? And and notice the things that he says about the Jews. He says, the Jews uh, have enjoyed peace and prosperity due to your leadership. You're incredible. We all love you. He also says that everyone is accepting his great leadership with approval and gratitude. Now, as we read this, we should go, really? Everyone. Do you know any leader that everybody is just like, you're incredible. We all love you. There's not a single person among us who does not think you could do a better job. So he says all of these things, and then he says a wonderful lawyer thing. I'm going to be brief. And he's going to be just as brief as any preacher ever could be, right? He promises to be brief. All this to say, when we look at the historical context from which Tertullus is speaking, what's going on with the Jews, what's going on with Felix, we understand that Tertullus is lying through his teeth. The Jews hated Felix. The Jews did not like any of the legislation that he was bringing about. This is a theme in this portion of Acts, that a local authority is giving a picture of the status quo that is not true. Remember, Claudius just did this in his letter that he sent to Felix. I've got this all under control. Here's some things that I'm learning. It's your turn now. Not true. He had no idea what was going on. He was passing the buck. And now we have Tertullus, who stands in for the Jews, understanding that he needs to have this judge's favor. Now, it may just be that he is using this sort of extreme language, continuing on with this first century tendency of inflating the ego of the judge in order to win their approval. But historian Conrad Gump says this, Tertullus attempted to remind Felix that the stability had been purchased through severe action against troublemakers, that's the Jews, of which he goes on to argue Paul was one causing riots all over the world. In other words, Tertullus is speaking code. He is trying to convince this judge to behave as he has behaved before when there is any uprising from the Jews, to be swift and to be exact and to operate in favor of the Jews, in this case, in silencing Paul. Tertullus goes on now to make these accusations. Look at verse 5. They're threefold. For we have found this man, speaking to Paul, a plague. One who stirs up riots among all Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Plays to his ego again. You could figure this out all on your own, but I've listed the three things just in case. So the first thing they call Paul is a political troublemaker. He is stirring up these kinds of crowds. And in particular, they use the word ringleader. That word, ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene, was a pseudo-militaristic term. So Tertullus is trying not to just say he's causing problems in our churches, or rather in our temples, or in our religious settings, which was the accusation that many would say, but he's actually causing problems for you. And that word sect is ultimately be, will become the word where we get our word for heresy. So they're calling Paul a heretic. They're calling him a political liability. They're calling him a ringleader of an entire sect of people. Never mind, Paul continues to be captured alone, not with a lot of other people. They accuse Paul, thirdly, of temple desecration. In other words, for the one billionth time, someone is saying that Paul defiled the temple. Now, none of these things 
are true. Although they make an accusation about his political power, make an accusation of his heresy within spirituality, and they make an accusation that he is even testing God by entering into the temple in an unholy and impure manner. Now, Paul in all of this is just sitting and listening. This is incredibly surprising because in the first century, it was customary for the one accused to not even come into the room until the judge, the presiding judge, had heard the accusations, and then they would bring them to the one being accused. But in this case, this uncommon moment, Paul is sitting there, listening, and even perhaps more uncommon for Paul than that, he's just quiet. He's just listening. He's not interrupting. He's waiting. And in this incredible moment, Felix then hears that, looks to Paul, and nods. Look at verse 10, giving him permission to speak. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Compare Tertullus's intro to Paul's. Tertullus goes on and on. Everybody loves you. All of the Jews vote yes. We're going to vote for you in the re-elections campaign. We love you so much. Paul's like, you're in charge. It's been a minute since you've been in charge. I guess I'll talk to you. Right? He, he acknowledges that he's in charge, but literally there's no flowery language here. He acknowledges his place and he says, I'm happy to talk to you if you're the one in charge still. Look at verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone and st- or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Now, verse 17, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here, parenthetically, by the way, before you, and so make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection and to the dead of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul's response is first a direct refutation of what he's been accused of. He says, I'm not stirring up crowds. See that in verse 11. He says, I'm not some per- political ringleader. He says, I'm not ha- since it's not happening in the city in verse 12. He says, I'm cleansed myself before the sanctuary. I was purified in the temple. So it's partly a direct response to what he has been accused of. But there's also this aspect of calling to account the real culprits of the whole saga. Did you notice that? He goes, Where are these Jews from Asia? These are the guys who actually started this whole mess. Why aren't they here? Now, part of this is just logic. Logic that those who make the accusation should be the ones who come at me. They didn't even make the trip down to Caesarea. Where are they? But more than that, Paul, as a Roman citizen, understands that legally speaking, these Jews who are not really the ones to bring the accusation, but those Jews from Asia, those are the ones, legally speaking, who must come before them. As one uh, historian says, Roman law was very strong 
against accusers who abandoned their charge. In other words, there was legal grounds that Paul was making a case for, for his case to be dismissed because his accusers weren't even there. So he demands directly for himself. He defends himself. He, he says that the troublemakers and the real ringleaders aren't even here. And then Paul has to preach a little bit, right? He has to preach sort of in the, little, the, minute, in the middle of his defense. He uses this language of worship and resurrection. Did you pick up on it? First, look at worship in verse 11. He, the first word that he uses is a word, proskino. Proskino, for instance, is, is about this posture, this posture of worship where we may get our word prostrate or bowed down. This is a unique description for Paul. He has not described his act of going to Jerusalem as worship other than this moment here in Acts. And then he uses another word for worship in verse 14, that he worships Latrio, the God of our fathers. The second occurrence of worship is about serving. So Paul is saying that in coming to Jerusalem and his work in Jerusalem is about humbling himself before God and it's about serving God. He actually gives us an incredible definition of worship. Worship is being humble before God in all things and serving God in all of life. This, this kind of language presented in his response of this understanding that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. In other words, the way that I'm worshiping and what I am doing in response to the work of Jesus is directly in line with my brothers and sisters, my Jewish people. This is the fulfillment of what we have been hoping for. This is the aim, in other words, of our worship. So Paul was not only innocent of opposing the law and the temple and of God himself, but in following Jesus the way he was worshiping in humble service the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was living in the fulfilled way that he was called to by God, based even on his Jewish heritage. See, the way Paul describes worship is very familiar to the Hebrew mind. Notice the ways that verse 14 and 15 begin to categorize in this response, saying that worshiping God, he was believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, and having hope in God, he was worshiping, resulting in hope and faith. Let's, let's just be honest for a second. This is not how we think about worship. Worship to us is an event, it's a moment, it's a place, it's a context where we do things. What Paul is communicating is a kind of posture before God in all of life and serving him and being humble before him. Now, why is this so important? Well, Paul is brilliant in his defense because he is making a case legally but also spiritually. For both crowds in the room, he is saying he is completely innocent, never recanting anything that he has done based on the gospel and yet upholding the word of God in all things. This is beautiful, the word that God has given Paul in his own defense. Paul accomplished a lot of this through the word worship, but he also does a lot through this repetitious reference of resurrection. Look at verse 15 again. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then look down at verse 21. Other than this one thing that I cried out, while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul knows there's an accusation that he's stirring up things. He's like, I only stirred up things because I was preaching, because I was talking about the resurrection. That got them all 
fussy with me. You see, resurrection is not merely a defense for him, but he begins to teach us about the resurrection. Because notice, he talks about a future resurrection. He is not pointing back proving the resurrection of Christ. He says there will be a resurrection of the unjust and the just, the resurrection of the dead. See, Paul's understanding of resurrection is rooted in God's identity as the one true judge. Did you notice this? The way that he is speaking is completely in line with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Hear this from verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Paul begins to speak about what he will later write about with incredible clarity of something that many New Testament authors call the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has at least three things associated with it that help us understand the full weight of God's judgment. First, it means that Jesus is coming back as king. This is not a mythical idea that we are on a wish and a prayer. Like, that's a neat idea to think about. The scriptures over and over and over again speak about Jesus coming back. The question is not, have you heard that before, but do you truly believe? Because when Jesus comes back, a la John 14, Acts chapter 1, Jesus himself, as he goes and ascends, an angel comes and goes, why are you waiting here? Jesus is going to come back just as he left. You better be ready. He is coming back and he is bringing all things to rights. In other words, Jesus is coming back and he's bringing heaven with him. He's bringing and making heaven and earth completely one. And at the second advent, as he returns, we spend way too much time trying to figure out how we will exactly know that he is coming back instead of just anticipating one day all shall be well. Now, the way that he describes this also, Paul does, not only here in Acts, but elsewhere, is that at the coming of the Lord, at the day of the Lord, there will be resurrection. Now, think about this. It's real comfortable as Christians to just go, yeah, we all get wings like we're floating around on clouds, and it's this sort of like super spiritual existence. It's another thing to go, graves are going to be emptied out on the day of the Lord. Let that settle. This is what Scripture teaches there are going to be holes in the ground where currently bodies fill them. The resurrection of the dead is something over and over again, not only anticipated in Persian culture and then on into Jewish culture, but First and Second Kings both testify to this. And incredible clarity comes even in the work and words of Jesus when he bears witness as the first fruits of a new creation, the firstborn of a new creation. Jesus himself, resurrection, anticipates the resurrection of all those who believe in Jesus. Not just spiritually will we be with him, but one day we will have a physical existence in the very presence of God, heaven and earth coming together, almighty God, his light shining brightly over all things, we submitting to his word and will with great joy with physical bodies that are recognizable. See, the living and the dead will be physically raised, and on that day we will stand before God almighty. Thirdly, Not only will Jesus return, not only will there be resurrection, but God will judge humanity. God will judge humanity, and he'll set all things to rights in Jesus Christ, some into everlasting presence or heaven, and some into everlasting separation or hell. 
See, the final judgment is not something that we like to talk about very much because it gives us the full weight of God's justice and judgment. And we're like, yo, where's, where's Matthew 7, 1, right? Judge not lest you be judged. Jesus, have you read your own Bible? Right? Have you, re- have you read these words? This is, this is, not, <laughs> this is not very good. But, but the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, and just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will again, or rather will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, the first coming of Christ was to make a way into the age to come, and the second coming of Christ is to welcome us into that everlasting existence. Heaven, writer and Professor Rebecca McLaughlin says, heaven is home, an embodied experience of deep relationship with God and with his people on a recreated earth, a blessed welcome to home for those who are in Christ. Hell is just the opposite. And as C.S. Lewis so famously said, hell is not a place where injustice reigns, but hell is a place locked from the inside. Heaven is a place of presence with God, hell, a place of separation from him eternally. Paul has made this case, bringing up resurrection, because he is saying, this is the real issue. It's not that I'm stirring up stuff. It's not that they don't like what I do. It's not that I didn't purify myself. It's not this. It's resurrection. They don't want to deal with judgment. They don't want to deal with the resurrection of the just and the unjust. They don't want to deal with the resurrection of the dead. In fact, some of these folks, right, the Sadducees don't even believe in it. They don't want to deal with this. And so when Paul's verdict is delayed, he's taken into this sort of new friendship with Felix. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Jerusalem, and who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And hear this, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, saying, go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. This very odd friendship starts to blossom between the governor, Felix, and Paul, the prisoner. This very powerful man and this man who is in shackles. And what once seems to, if we kind of look at this text, it seems to be this respectable relationship. Felix brings his wife they have a conversation. He speaks about faith in Christ. They reason about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix doesn't like that message, and so then he just makes their relationship about money. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I don't like what you have to say, but you have some assets that perhaps would be helpful for me. Because Paul is likely continuing to get support for his missionary efforts. Why did Felix respond so negatively? I think it's what blossoms out of friendship. See, Paul doesn't speak about self-control and righteousness and coming judgment just haphazardly. He knows these reveal idols that Felix has. Think about it. He's a governor. He does what he wants. He didn't have to have self-control. He is control. Righteousness, he defines righteousness. He sits in judgment over everybody. 
Judgment? How could you say I'm going to be judged? I am the one doing the judgment. See, at the core of our own modern discomfort, our own modern discomfort with judgment is that none of us want to submit. None of us, just like Felix. This word alarmed is that he's terrified. It's the same word used often when people come face to face with angels. They're like, oh no, this is not good. I have been had. I have been found wanting. I am exposed. So what do we do? Well, here's the, this really strange cocktail or alchemy, if you will, of our refusal to love and to submit to judgment. See, we don't want to submit because we believe that that's death. To submit is to give up my personhood, to give up my faculty, to give up my autonomy. It might as well be death. However, here's what's really strange. We want someone else's autonomy to be taken away if they use their power inappropriately. So, we want judgment of injustice, not injustice, though, in our own hearts. It's very selective, isn't it? So, this reveals that third aspect. Not only do we not want to submit, not only do we want justice to come to unjust power, but we judge people all the time. Like, think about it. You walked in here. You saw somebody with that top that just didn't fit them the same way that you know it fits you. You saw somebody's kids acting crazy like, mine are paying attention. I don't know about yours. My kid lifted his hands to Jesus. Yours can't keep his hands still. We look at one another all the time, pass them, think, quick thought. Be like, oh, that's just a thought. That's just something in my heart. No, it's sin. It's anger. It's incomplete. It's judgment on yourself according to Matthew chapter 7. See, if we refuse to submit, it really reveals an inflated sense of our own intellect and morality. It's hypocrisy. If we despair in false accusations of judgment, we fail to trust that God alone is righteous. If we judge others in order to feel superior, it reveals just how little righteousness we actually have and how little of God's reign we actually trust. This is, I think, what Paul understood. He understood that judgment was coming for those who were judging him. He understood that the powers that were over him were no match for the powers that would soon come. Why? Because he knows Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who actually submits. Jesus is the one in the face of our refusal to submit to God, submits on our behalf to the will of the Father. Jesus defeats. Jesus, in the face of unjust power and condemnation and accusal, Jesus defeats unjust power. Jesus judges even over the sinful judgments of our invisible inclinations in our hearts and mind. Jesus sits as righteous judge. So to judge is to act like Jesus is not. See, what God does, according to Romans chapter 3, is in his divine forbearance, he passes over former sins, but not because he will not judge them, but because one day he's coming back to judge all things. Hear this, church. Paul and Felix continue their relationship for two years. And, and look at the last verse. When, when the two, ha two years had eclipsed, Felix was succeeded by Pro Prochius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison, so much of their friendship. See, he ultimately reveals what this whole thread of this story is about. Our real issue with judgment is hypocrisy. And, and what begins to happen? We, we should be frustrated that the Jews want to judge Paul for being a heretic, all the while trying to kill him and breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That's hypocrisy. 
We should be unnerved by Claudius, who writes a letter protecting himself to expose Paul, who is in a weaker state. We should be aggravated by Tertullius, who is attempting to condemn Paul while manipulating the judge and not telling the truth. We should be upset that the judge and governor, the power of the day, Felix, who promises to withhold the legal process until Claudius comes down to Caesarea, but instead tries to extort Paul for money and leaves him in jail unjustly for two years. This should burn at us, do you see? The issue in this story is not that Paul is being judged, it's that he is being judged by hypocrites. I give you again Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, our favorite verse as millennials, right? This is we shellac it on plates, put it on our wallpaper of our computers. Do not judge, lest you be judged. Like many things, we don't read the whole passage, so hear this. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not telling his listeners to refrain from judgment. He is telling them to flee from hypocrisy. He is teaching his listeners to first look at their own life, discern the logs that are in their own eye, deal with that, receiving God's grace. That that way they can see rightly. They can discern rightly. They can speak truth and righteousness to their brothers and sisters. Righteousness, therefore, church, is not about refraining from judgment, but rather refraining from judging hypocritically. Because we've got to judge each other. This is how we help one another prepare for the day of the Lord. You look at my life. I need you to look at my life and go, Jason, there's hypocrisy in your life. I don't see you living the way that you preach. I don't see you loving your wife the way you tell me to. I don't see you disciplining and discipling your children the way that you ought. I see things in your heart. I need you to speak that in my life. I know they're there. I need to consider your motivations, your understanding of the Scriptures, and the way that you're living. We need together to open up our Bibles to allow the truth of God's Word to expose and poke and prod and move in us that that guilt might be confessed, that shame might be dissolved, that sin might be exposed, that we might become holy even as He is holy. See, how much do you have to hate somebody to see something broken in their life and not tell them? but how hypocritical it is to act like you are unbroken yourself. See, Jesus is the only one who never had a plank or a speck in his eye. And he looks over us and pronounces us righteous. Why? Because he imputes and gives it to us. Therefore, our joy and job in righteousness is to see the places we are not reflecting Christ and anticipating that one day he will be back to judge the living and the dead, to look to one another and to judge with humility, to judge in serving God, to look at one another knowing that one day God will judge all souls of men and women, that we might not sin in condemnation of one another, but sit with joy knowing that all shall be well. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us. Help us, Father, to live this kind of way in a way that reflects your goodness, your grace, your righteousness, and your love in all humility, judging one another, not out of hypocrisy, but out of grace and truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.